Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm David Horspool, history editor of the TLS, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Dermot McCulloch uh, here today. Uh, Dermot is professor of the history of the church at Oxford University and the author of very many works, including Thomas Cranmer, Reformation and a History of Christianity. But the book we're here to discuss today is his new book, A Life of Thomas Cromwell. And we're very pleased that this week we've got an extract from that book detailing the last days of Thomas uh, when he at last ran out of luck and fell prey to yet another one of Henry VIII's executioner's axes. So what I think we might do, Dermot, welcome, is to start back at the beginning. Well, actually, before we start, I thought I might ask you uh, a simple sort of housekeeping question, which is, have I been pronouncing his name wrong all these years? Um, I see by, in your introduction, you tell us that perhaps Thomas Cromwell isn't how we should be pronouncing him. No, I think not. I think it's fascinating working out the pronunciation of Tudor surnames. And as I went through thousands on thousands of letters, first thing I noticed was that virtually all of them spell uh, his surname with a U, Cromwell. Cromwell. And but then I thought, actually, if you pronounce that, it's really much more difficult than Cromwell. You try it and sometime. And uh, the, the likelihood is, in thinking of other Tudor pronunciations, it's Crummel. 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 Which I think you say John Buchan uses uh, as as his his version. That, that's right. In in a fascinating novel, which I think has been totally forgotten now, a historical novel about the fifteen thirties, and uh, it's called The Blanket of the Dark. I, I think it's wonderful. Total mm. totally not history, but a wonderful <laughs> sort of parallel universe, a bit like Hilary Mantel in that respect. But point is that he throughout the book per, spells it Crummel, uh-huh. and I think that's that's absolutely right. Well, I hope you won't mind if we call him Cromwell from from now on, because I think bit. I might find it. Might, well, you can call him what you like, of yeah, course, but I yeah, think I yeah. might find find it a bit odd calling him Cromwell. So let's start with his origins, because they're fascinatingly obscure for someone who became so famous, who we still talk about today. So, yeah, born in Putney, which uh, was not what it is now. It was a rather obscure village on the rivers, ferry point over the river. Uh, It built a sort of motorway service station, really, (laughs) because the River Thames at that stage was the great thoroughfare. 
great thoroughfare from London, the capital, through to the complex of royal palaces upstream. So the good folk of Putney were always seeing the great past them, cardinals and the king himself and so on. So young Thomas would have grown up with that, but his, his father was... Um, you won't call him obscure. He was a yeoman, which means much less than a gentleman, and he dabbled in things. He he had a brewery. Uh, he uh, uh, later on bought a mill, well, perhaps a water mill, in Wandsworth. So actually, they moved to Wandsworth. So it's that sort of area. And young Thomas, therefore, uh, not part of the governing elite in the least. So how did it, how did he make it? I mean, we know, I I know that he he left England. Is that the first step on on the ladder, really? That his his sort of his own grand tour, as it were. Yeah, that made Italian him, connection. That made him different. I mean, it's sort of uh, extended gap year, except he never went to university. Uh, this is clearly, I, I think, the the action of uh, a teenager who was really, really bored with Putney, and who can blame him? So he he travelled way, way down to Italy, and the story is uh, uh, in contained in a, a a sort of miniature novel, a novella by a mid-16th century bishop and writer called uh, Bandello. And it's about Thomas Cromwell. And, and it's a story of young Thomas turning up in Florence and being utterly destitute, but being taken pity on by uh, a young, uh, wealthy merchant called Francesco Frescobaldi. And the Frescobaldi were a great family and still are in Florence. And, and the, through from the 13th century, they'd been trading. They, they were wine merchants then, they're wine merchants now. And, and at the time, they had an international business. So it was a, a very good stroke of fortune, if that's what it was, to meet a Frescobaldi who took a liking to this totally uh, alien young man from a, as far as you can think of in Europe at the time. And that was the making of him. So he returned as a, a sophisticated young man, but probably no not much richer than, than he'd left. Probably not, no, uh, but mysteriously well-educated. No university, but he could speak Italian, he could speak French, a uh, bit of Spanish probably, reading German, and interestingly, Latin. Well, his Latin was, was, was OK, It was absolutely it? fine, and a bit of Greek, I think. Wow. Because his, uh, <laughs> though the sycophantic later on put Greek tags in their letters to him, and you wouldn't do that unless you felt, oh, well, he'd, he'd be flattered by him doing yes. that. Because of course, yes, being insulted by it was not what they were. No, no, not what they were after. And then, of course, the first step within English politics and his rise is to become Cardinal Wolsey's man. How did that come about? Well, very late. I mean, he's nearly forty, so his career is starting when a lot of Tudor people died. Mm. Uh, and, and you think, well, why pick out this particular merchant and minor lawyer from the whole crowd swarming around London? He's the Italian. He's the best Italian in Tudor England, as I put it. Uh, he, he knows Italian, and he knows Italians. And the point of that was that Cardinal Thomas Wolsey at the time was building a tomb for himself. You did this if you felt you wanted immortality. You, you, you built the most splendid tomb you could. And, and this tomb would uh, be associated with two great colleges, one in the University of Oxford and another sort of school like Eton uh, in Ipswich, which is where he was born. But the point was that the tomb was the focus of what you might call this legacy project. And the tomb was being made by Italians, sculptors, great names in the world of Florentine sculpture in particular. So I think Cromwell is there to be the liaison man. He's a middleman between the Italian sculptors and Wolsey himself. Yeah. And 
as Wolsey's fortunes start to dive, uh, because other people tried to do this and made it less effectively, the, the jump, how did Thomas manage to... He seems to have managed to move over into royal service without ever explicitly abandoning uh, Wolsey, in fact, retaining some kind of loyalty to him and and being fairly demonstrative in that, despite the fact that Wolsey had fallen out of favour. Yeah, that was a subtle and uh, interesting thing to do. He, he clearly adored the cardinal. And so as the cardinal's power ebbed, he, he didn't desert him. He moved into the king's service. And I think maybe, and I can't swear to this, I think the tomb again is important because the king, with his usual uh, selfishness, pinched the tomb. <laughs> there it was in, in sections in a, we- a warehouse in Westminster with the sculptor still working on it. And he said, right, I- I'll have that. This is going to be the best tomb in Northern Europe. I'll, I'll take all the bits, which aren't very specifically Wolsey bits, and uh, they'll be mine. And so you can see how Cromwell might have been the man to do exactly the same thing in relation to the sculptors for the king. And he went on being associated with the project. And as I thought, that, that tomb didn't end up as Henry's tomb, did it? Or uh, Because I think I've seen a, even an illustration in your book that, that, that parts of it ended up in different places and lost the angels lost their wings yes, yes, as the, recently the, the 70s this is so This is the great historical justice of the situation, that <laughs> King Henry VIII never got a tomb and serve him right for stealing <laughs> someone else's. And the, the bits of the tomb survived up to the English Civil War, uh, in this time in a warehouse in Windsor, and then Parliament sold them off because there's valuable bronze things like that. Along so, with all those yeah, yeah, the, the candlesticks now in the Belgium, and the, the, these extraordinary, beautiful four angels, which uh, were uh, actually uh, the gateposts in a, in a golf club in the Midlands <laughs> for a while, and now that they're they're safe in Victoria and other museums. So, so that was how how he managed to make this jump. It was again this kind of Italian expertise, but now we've got him in the middle of the king's business. And the king's business at this point, around 1530, we're talking, the king's business was mainly what was known as the king's great matter. Yeah, getting rid of one wife and substituting another, or at least saying first wife and never really existed. Yes, it occurred Catherine to, of Aragon. Yes. <laughs> it occurred to me that the famous, the rhyme, should be annulled, beheaded, absolutely, died, rather than uh, and and again. There not was divorced. there was no divorce at the time. Yeah. What you could say is that a marriage had never happened, and that's Henry's campaign to because of all sorts of legal technicalities, they'd never been married, and therefore he was free to marry uh, Anne Bullen. And uh, maybe this is a a moment to think about some of the uh, personal religious positions and beliefs. Um, I I think you go along some way with the idea that Henry possibly really had convinced himself that there was some truth to the biblical injunction against marrying your your brother's widow, which is what he'd done in marrying Catherine of Aragon. Similarly with Thomas, it it interests me, you you emphasise very early on in the book what you what we should call his evangelical connections, his sort of early Protestant yeah. um, beliefs or uh, dabblings. And um, the, the matter of kind of squaring that first with uh, serving a cardinal who seemed very much to represent the traditional conservative church and then having to, um, well, dance this interesting dance of supporting an ostensibly rigorously Catholic king who was busily splitting himself off from uh, from Rome 
while also promoting Lutheranism or anyway a form of early Protestant. How, yeah, what it's, are your speculations about all it's that? It's complicated, but then whoever said history was simple. Uh, to start with, yes, he's Wolsey's servant, and I, I said he adored Wolsey. But I think he, he probably, to begin with, saw Wolsey as the agent of reform because uh, as part of his duties in this big legacy project, setting up the colleges, looking after the tomb, the cardinal wanted small monasteries to be dissolved uh, so that their income would supply the income for the, the new colleges. And, and so Crum one very important aspect of Cromwell's job was to dissolve monasteries under Wolsey. And he would see that as part of a, a much wider plan of reform, both in the church and in the kingdom, because Wolsey was in charge of both. And Wolsey was full of reforming plans. Uh, it, the trouble was that Wolsey had the attention span of a gnat right. and also so much to do that the, 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 these reforms dissolved. Uh, and, and whether uh, if he'd survived, uh, he would have become a reformer in some sense, who knows. But you know, you're right. He's a, he's a symbol of the traditional church. Uh, in retrospect, Protestants see him as a symbol of everything that's gone wrong in the old church, and interestingly, so do counter-Reformation Catholics. So Wolsey couldn't really win in that. Because he was sort of personally self-indulgent, he had um, illegitimate offspring, he was obviously had this incredibly lavish yeah. lifestyle and so on. And yeah, it's, it's, it he's wasn't a, perf a good look. He's a perfect symbol of everything which had gone wrong, and they can say, oh yes, well that's in the past, and no, the counter-Reformation, we're, we're good Catholics now. And the Protestants could say, well, we told you so, that's exactly the the sort of person who is the symbol of the old corruption. And, and by that stage, Cromwell had moved on. Uh, he'd exposed his hand as, a, as an evangelical in the 1530s, but always dancing a dance with the king whose religious agenda was very different and, and not predictable. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Perhaps that would bring us to the, the dissolution of the monasteries, which I suppose may be the most famous thing in a way that Cromwell was involved in, uh, possibly the most long-lasting Again, is there a kind of, would you call it a hypocrisy or a sort of double think in terms of the reasons why these monasteries were being dissolved? And it was a steady program that went from smaller houses being suppressed to a wholesale 
dissolution of, of, of all monastic houses in, in England. Do you think it's possible to say with any degree of certainty whether the motivations for that were purely monetary, commercial, financial, because obviously there was a lot of money attached to those institutions, or was there a kind of reforming zeal, or did it just happen to be a happy coincidence? Happy coincidence is right, but one thing you can say about Cromwell was he was very unusual among laymen, lay people, in being actually very involved in monasteries from the time of Wolsey onwards. And as he had lots and lots of friends, he knew more about monasteries, and uh, the the personal links are quite remarkable. Even with the, the London Carthusians, the Charter House, which has blackened his name because of the cruel deaths of many of the members, he was very emotionally involved there. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, that particular encounter was so charged. But you can look around. You can see him actively very friendly with some of the great Benedictine abbots of England. And they were reformers too. And as his programme unfolded when he got real power in the church... Um, you, you can see that a lot of the elements in that program, particularly education, would appeal to them. And right up to 1538, uh, that's just only two years before he fell, his plans included uh, remodelling various monasteries as what would be called colleges of secular priests, non-monastic priests. And what we forget very often is that that actually happened. And we've still got some of these institutions. We call them cathedrals. Yes. And, and some of them were actually brand new cathedrals in the 1530s. Um, you could look at Peterborough, for instance, or Bristol. Mm. Well, I suppose in one sense, um, what Cardinal College became, Christchurch. Yeah. Oxford was a, was a cathedral now with canons uh, rather than fellows. Yeah. So not everybody went along with the, the idea of the dissolution of the monasteries, of course. And... We sort of move on a bit to 1536 there, um, was the largest rebellion in Tudor history, um, one of the largest rebellions in English history, known as the Pilgrimage of Grace. I think it's probably fair to say that isn't particularly well remembered in our popular uh, historical memory, but it was very serious, wasn't it? Very serious. Uh, the, the most serious rebellion of the Tudor age, and uh, uh, huge, and it nearly succeeded in a sense by Christmas 1536, the pilgrims had won against the king, and it took uh, a lot of what you might simply call trickery after that to provoke some of them into rebelling again, so therefore the king could crush them at that stage. I found that episode fascinating, and what I found uh, as I unravelled it for myself is just how focused on Thomas Cromwell the whole thing was. Well, that's what I was wondering. I mean, he, he he's mentioned by the pilgrims in some of their bills and so on i mean he he's absolutely the focus how how did that happen? was that in fact a, the truth of the matter was that he was in charge of this program which had became very unpopular or was it a sort of clever thing that the king had managed to do to push cromwell out in front of this problem uh that, that's that's exactly it i think um the king was always very good at uh, escaping people's wrath by saying it's my minister's and Cromwell had taken the programme of dissolution over. He'd actually said beforehand, look, this is going to cause trouble. We shouldn't be doing this in a systematic way. And, of course, he was right because the pilgrimage happened. But once, once he'd taken over the scheme, when he realised that it was going to happen, uh, he was the man whose servants went out leading the dissolution. And so very precisely, people 
uh, in the North who hated dissolutions, and virtually everyone did, would blame him, and they blamed his servants. But from day one, he's named. Uh, the, the, the first outbreak of trouble is actually in the Pennines, a place called Dent. And they say to someone they think is associated with the government, uh, they shout at him and they, they name Cromwell. And they say, we will crumb him and crumb him until he was never so crumbed. Another reason for knowing the names pronounced like that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But he somehow, as you say, through trickery, they, he managed to, to avoid that. We're only, but we're only four years now, actually, from his, his final downfall. And in between, I mean, we we have to sort of rush through his life rather. But um, in between, we've seen some, you mentioned the Carthusians, but we've seen some very violent episodes, the Carthusians being marched to their deaths in Smithfield, is it? Yeah. Um, and, of course, the fall of Thomas More. Mm. Um, what was Cromwell's role in that, in the fall of Thomas More? He was instrumental in bringing it about, but behind him was the king. I mean, it's a typical example of Henry... Uh, first loving someone, then loathing them, and loathing them all the more for ha- for loving for having loved them, uh, and yet uh, it will always be someone else who does the dirty work. Then, and undoubtedly, Cromwell did organise uh, the trial, the death. Still controversial as to how much uh, how unfair that trial was. Uh, it's not a creditable episode in his story. I'm not pretending he's whiter than white. Mm. He uh, he did the king's bidding. They'd got on more and Cromwell, and I think to the last, had a, a respect for each other. And did he? could he have in any way convinced himself or made the argument that he wouldn't have known what the eventual fate of Thomas would have been, by, say, by comparison with Thomas Wolsey, who didn't... Um, uh, suffer the final um, indignity. Well, we don't. We are. Wolsey might have done. He might have done if he'd lived. He, to... he was being summoned to face treason charges, which I think were genuine. And of course, the, the charges against Moore are genuine in the sense of treason. Uh, and once once you're in that ballpark, um, treason is is the poison. You, you you won't get out of treason unless you're very very lucky. And Henry was determined on destruction in that case, and you see other instances of it, and Cromwell has to take the blame, and we, we can't let him off the hook. So at the end of this, this period of the pilgrimage of grace with, with other obstacles out of the way, he's moving f- more and more towards the centre of power. He, he eventually is uh, ennobled as Earl of Essex. His, I'm going to get this wrong, his son marries... The king's sister-in-law. Sister-in-law, yeah. Correct. So that's yeah. Um, Jane Seymour's. Jane Seymour's sister. sister yeah. So you would have thought he's sort of made for life. What brings him down? Precisely that set of circumstances. If you're uh, if you're doing something like marrying the king's sister-in-law, you are making a very specific bid to get in that charmed circle at the top. Uh, the charmed circle being those who might be king. And that's a very dangerous place to be uh, because Henry VIII was uh, hypersensitive to the thought of anyone else apart from his own children succeeding the throne. I think you you might read this as rival dynasties, not that Cromwell in any sense really challenged the king, but in the eyes of the nobility, there would be a Cromwell dynasty uh, allied to the Seymours, and that, that alliance was very strong, very close, and Cromwell was very close to the queen's brother, Edward Seymour, who later became Lord Protector to 
young King Edward. So uh, the mere fact of uh, marrying his son to uh, Elizabeth Seymour made him the king's uncle in an in, in informal sense. And you can just think what the great nobility of the realm thought of the, the brewer's son from Putney being in that position. And I suppose there's an atmosphere of, of paranoia around this court at any time. The precise mechanism by which he ended up facing trial and facing the executioner was really this gathering of, of, of those enemies. It was, and uh, around another marriage, um, the most disastrous plan Cromwell ever had, which was to find the king wife number four, for Anne of Cleves. Anne of Cleves. Uh, it seemed such a good idea at the time. Uh, Henry had run out of eligible ladies on, on, on main, in mainland Europe, and so he, he was down to the Duchy of Cleves, Jülich, uh, and it, it, it really is an absolute floor of who he could actually marry. Uh, but it had lots of advantages that, that Cleves had not broken with Rome, yet it was very independent in its religious outlook. Uh, it was anti-Habsburg, so here would be a possible gathering of alliances for the King of England in, in the middle, in the heart of Europe. And uh, you could read this as a Protestant uh, uh, possibility. Alongside it, there was um, a, another princess, uh, the Lady Mary, the king's daughter. She would be married as part of this scheme to the Duke of Bavaria. Was another of these anti-Habsburgs. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful plan. And the, the only thing which went wrong was the, the king's physical revulsion against Anne of Cleves. It's so just, it's the personal chemistry or, or lack of it? It's total. It's about chemistry. And it seems very unfair on Anne, although from another point of view, I think you, um, you say she spent 17 years um, very happily not being married to anyone else. Yeah. And <laughs> perhaps she came out of it uh, better than almost anyone in this story. I think she did, yes. She, she got a house and a pension and no one else bothering her. Yeah, I think that the, 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 the real her, uh, heroines in the book are, well, heroes, heroines, are women. And it's Elizabeth Seymour in the one hand and it's Anne of Cleves. These are the, these are the people who actually win in that very <laughs> difficult game of winning in, in the reign of Henry VIII. And with Thomas himself, um, we sort of ended up back where we started. You quote at the beginning of your, your book, I think it's um, Geoffrey Elton's line about him not being... Uh, it's a word I find difficult to pronounce. Biographable. Biographable. Yes. Biographable. It, it's not. It's not an English word. Geoffrey <laughs> uh, Elton was uh, uh, wonderful at conjuring up these words. Rather like, like Nicholas Pevsner. They're both immigrants, German immigrants, refugees, and, and biographable. Who taught us our own history. Yeah. And obviously, you you disagree with with him. I mean, how did you come to that conclusion that actually you can write a biography of of Thomas? Because there are thousands of documents and they are largely political, but you can squeeze them. Uh, they're curiously skewed in that they're mostly the what you can call the in-tray of his archive. It's the, the letters written to him. The out-tray is missing, and I think deliberately so, that the, his household destroyed the out-tray when he was arrested in order to save him, try and save him, because it's your own letters that incriminate you. A good try, didn't work. But the point is that, therefore, it's very difficult to hear his voice. What you can do is feel his imprint through other people into what they say to him and just pick up the odd remark and, and build up far more personal character than I thought I would at the beginning. And did that change your opinion of him 
um, as you were going along, or did you did you start out with a view of him that was largely my, confirmed? My, my view was not unfavourable to start with. I think I warmed to him because I, I, what I sensed, uh, which I didn't quite expect to find, was absolute chutzpah. This is a man who says, right, I've got all the disadvantages in life come from nowhere. I don't care. And I don't care what the nobility think of me. And again and again, you get that sense of a man who, who chances it. He's such a chancer. That's what I think Geoffrey Elton missed. Uh, the sense of the, the wonderful improviser, sort of Till Eulenspiegel. Uh, those of us who saw Ben Miles's portrayal of Cromwell on stage in Hilary Mantel's um, yeah. uh, stage versions of her novels, that was it. He, he scampers around Tudor England. He, he sees a, a possibility, absorbs it, uh, has a misfortune, uh, deals with it. I found that fascinating. And I, I noticed just uh, leafing through the index uh, of your book, which is makes a great reading in itself, actually, uh, that um, under Thomas Cromwell, friends of, has a rather longer entry than Thomas Cromwell, Cromwell enemies of. But actually the biggest entry in, in that sort of section is servants and clients of. And I wonder whether that, in a way, sums up, you know, he, he seemed to make friends and keep friends quite easily. His servants and his clients just seemed to proliferate. And they became quite personal relations, didn't they? But he couldn't quite shake off those enemies, and he, he gathered some of them to him. Yeah, that's right. And, and yet some of the servants became enemies. The biggest one is a character who appears in Mantell's Call Me Risley. This is Thomas Risley, who later became Earl of Southampton. And Risley had already betrayed his previous master, who was the Bishop of Winchester, Stephen Gardner, and he betrayed Cromwell in the same way. He turned traitor at the end, and part of Cromwell's end was fall was because of Risley. I... Yeah, but he had so many servants that it's not surprising that some of them turned out to be um, well, duds. Same would be true of Wolsey. I mean, you, you, the, the most powerful man in the land will get the largest uh, collection of penumbra of hangers-on, yes. and some that's of true of Cromwell's Cromwell. Yes. Well, we've done quite well to um, avoid mentioning Hilary Mansell other than <laughs> twice or three times. Mm. But I suppose uh, a lot of people listening to this and reading your book will have first come to Thomas Cromwell through Wolf Hall and its sequel and its next sequel coming. Do you think, is it easy to say how your picture of Cromwell differs, other than obviously in detail and scholarly backing and so on, in terms of your take on Thomas Cromwell, how that differs? In we, we go in the same direction. We've not seen the whole architecture of Mantell's Cromwell yet. And we have to remember that it is a novel, a set of novels. So she inhabits a sort of Pullman-esque parallel universe to the real thing. But it's vivid. And she has the novelist skill of, of understanding realities, which historians might only glimpse. And one of the big themes in my book is the enmity between Queen Anne Bullen and Thomas Cromwell as, as a sort of structural thing. I mean, it explains so a lot. And there, it, I, I saw it in Mantell's novel and said, oh, yes, of course. Uh, and that enabled me to see things in the record that I might have taken more time to see. So we are going in the same direction. There is more, much more religion in my Cromwell. Uh, he is a convinced evangelical, convinced Protestant, that is, far um, in excess of what would be safe. That's what convinced me that this is real. You know, right. a, a cynical politician would not have taken the risks he did for the sake of religion. 
and um, that, that, that's, that's more than Mantell. I hope I'm slightly fairer to Thomas Moore. Um, there's no doubt that um, she, she uh, makes Moore a bit of a villain, a bit of a cartoon villain. Not that's unfair to her, perhaps. But that's the great criticism of her book. Moore is uh, an antagonist in the in my book. And of course, he, but he doesn't have to be he, a, a baddie to Thomas's no, goodie in that no, way. No, but he, the, the, there, are, there are baddie things in war, <laughs> and he, he wanted to see more heretics burned than were actually burned. So when we remember Cromwell's part in brutality, remember Moore's as well. It was a brutal time. Mm. Well, I think you, you, you said that Mantel's very vivid. I, I would, would close by saying that I think your book is extremely vivid and possibly rather funnier than um, than Hilary Mantel as well. There are there are lots of brilliant apersu in it, so I would encourage anyone to um, to read it um, and to get acquainted first with the extract in the TLS. But I think that's all we've got time for. So thank you very much indeed, Dermot McCulloch. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.